Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode takes us into the life of one of the 20th century's most iconic authors, edgy beat writer and cultural icon, Jack Kerouac. Reading his most famous book, On the Road, is still a rite of passage for many teens and people in their early 20s, and his coming-of-age tale continues to inspire writers, musicians and actors. We're joined by special guest Brian Hassett, a lifelong beat himself, and the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Jack Kerouac, as well as numerous other books on Kerouac and the Beat Generation. It's sometime in the 1930s, and a quiet teen from a French-Canadian family is keeping a low profile in a public library in Lowell, Massachusetts. He loves reading, and he comes here to delve into classic books, the words taking him deep into imaginary worlds. Most truants might be out socialising with their friends, smoking or sneaking into the movies, but there's nowhere else Jean-Louis Lebris de Kerouac, later known as Jack Kerouac, wants to spend his time. The young Jean-Louis is full of as-yet-untapped potential. Unusually for a budding writer, he's also a star on the sports field. He will attend university on a football scholarship, and once he reaches the big time, he'll also be celebrated for his brooding movie star good looks. But even at a young age, Jack tends to go his own way. His quiet nature goes hand in hand with a uniquely rebellious way of looking at the world. Our guest Brian Hassett talks about Jack's early years and what it was like growing up in a French-Canadian family in America. Grew up in a poor, lower-class home in a poor, lower-class French-Canadian town of Lowell, which was just outside of Boston. And the town was kind of a patchwork of different ethnicities. There was sort of the Italian neighborhood, the Greek neighborhood, the French Canadian neighborhood. It, both of his parents were born in Quebec, the French province in Canada. Uh, and so they were like, they were immigrants, spoke French. And so Jack spoke only French until he started to go to grade one in school. So he, you know, had hardly heard English spoken until he went into a classroom and suddenly everybody was speaking a different language. So he had to kind of gradually learn that. He was uh, uh, the youngest of three. Uh, he had an older brother and an older sister. And tragically, his older brother died when he was nine. The brother was nine and Jack was four of rheumatic fever. And that kind of really uh, kind of devastating for Jack, he ended up writing a whole book about it called Visions of Gerard, his brother's name and memories of him. And, you know, so when you're four years old and your older brother's your hero, sort of, and the guy gets is sick for a long time and then finally dies, that was a pretty traumatic aspect of his life. And then uh, the other cool thing about his Lowell upbringing was he was a, a voracious reader and uh and he managed to, um, you know, kind of uh, gravitate to a number of other young people who also loved poetry and stories. 
And um, they ended up forming a little sort of club for themselves called the Young Prometheans. Um, and it was very much a, a, like a dead poet society, but 50 years earlier. And it wasn't fictional. It was real. These guys, they, you know, kind of assumed characters and, and sort of lived in this mythological world that they created for themselves. And uh, another sort of funny little quirk about his early life in Lowell was he would skip school, but not to go and get drunk and party. He would skip school and go to the public library and read all day. Like who skips school to go to a library to read, you know? And uh, there he, he did it sort of so much there. And he had this one alcove on the main floor of the main library there that he, all, that he would get books and curl up in a big chair and read all afternoon. And it sort of became a, you know, a thing. The librarians were all, oh, that Kerouac kid is over there in the corner again. Um, and it's, you know, in part because, um, like, it's hard for us to think about it today, but, you know, there was no television. You know, phonograph record players were not that common. You know, basically all you had was radio and books. So he just, you know, he fell in love with words and started to write stories in little nickel uh, notebooks, you know, about the size of a pack of cigarettes or a deck of cards. And so that was how we started doing all that. After leaving school, 18-year-old Jack attends Columbia University in New York, but he drops out after losing his football scholarship. He's been benched for most of the year anyway after arguments with his coach, and breaking his tibia is the final straw. But he stays in New York, and the following year marries his girlfriend and first wife, Edie Parker. He does his bit for the US in World War II, joining the Marines in 1942 at the age of 20, and then the Navy Reserves in 1943. But his Navy career is short-lived. A loner by nature, he's wary of authority and finds it difficult to adjust to military life. He tells military doctors that he just can't stand it. I like to be by myself. He receives an honourable discharge on mental health grounds. He'll later claim the Navy thought he had dementia praecox, today known as schizophrenia, but his medical notes refer to schizoid personality and indifferent personality. Most commentators on Jack's life and work don't dwell on his military service or his mental health. After all, he became a successful author, and he also lived a more ordinary life than many of his literary contemporaries. However, the labels that were stuck on Jack Kerouac perhaps show how hard it was at the time to simply be different. On his return to New York, Jack grows acquainted with two eccentric writers, the poet Allen Ginsberg and the budding novelist William S. Burroughs. They're an odd couple, the gaunt, pale and drawn Burroughs will go on to write prolifically about his heroin addiction, while Ginsberg is rotund, beady-eyed and intense. In them, Kerouac finds kindred spirits, and the trio eventually become the original beat writers. The word beat was coined by Kerouac himself. It's associated with the word beatific, 
and also beat in the sense of being down and out. In the 1950s, the American dream is materialistic and conformist. It's the house with the white picket fence, the nuclear family, traditional gender roles, and the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. By contrast, the beat writers embrace drugs and Eastern versions of spirituality and defy norms around sexuality. The generation that came of age in the 1950s is known as the silent generation, the children born in the 30s and 40s who precede the baby boomers. They struggle to find their voice. This generation never really gets its youth culture moment but the rebellious attitude of the beatniks resonates with them. Brian talks about some of Kerouac's early inspirations. So he was a, like a natural storyteller and a mythologist. Um, you know, they were, they were reading, they, he was going right back to all of the Greek stuff. You know, those were like epic tales of sailing the seas and meeting sort of monsters and Greek gods and all this kind of stuff. And that mythology, the idea of mythologizing life, really sort of stayed with him the whole, his whole life. And he uh, ended up writing, he considered all of his books as part of what he called the Duluwa's legend. Uh, Duluwa's being the, uh, uh, the nom de plume fictional name that he came up with, it just like Kerouac Duluwa's. And uh, so all of the books were kind of based on real life adventures and people. And he wanted all of them to kind of stand united as one epic, mythic, long adventure tale, but it, it, in the form of a whole bunch of different books. And, and it, his dream was because they were published at different times by different publishers, you know, he, he would call, you know, a, a character based on Allen Ginsberg, he'd call him one name in one book and another name in another book. And his dream was to be able to go through and, and make all the names unified so the reader could see that that character, how he um, progresses throughout all the books. But anyway, so that, you know, he had this great sense of myth and storytelling and romanticism and, and you know, exploring the world. And you know, it's so typical, you know, a, a, a young boy with an imagination. It's not that uncommon. Kerouac's earliest novel, The Sea is My Brother, is written in the 1940s. It's about war and nature and draws heavily from his experience in the Marines. Kerouac is unhappy with it. It's only published in 2011, well after his death. His second novel, The Town and the City, does get published in 1946 under the name John Kerouac. It receives some good reviews, but it sells poorly. Kerouac writes in a manner inspired by Thomas Wolfe, he hasn't yet found the distinct flow of consciousness style that will make him famous. His first marriage falls apart while he's still a struggling writer in his 20s, and he marries his second wife, Joan, in 1950. On the Road, written the following year in 1951, is Kerouac's breakthrough work. Although he's been working on the ideas in the novel for years, the final draft is famously written in only three weeks, and in Jack Kerouac's haste to put it on the paper, 
he didn't include any paragraph breaks in his original manuscript. People have drawn parallels between Kerouac's fevered prose and improvisations in jazz music, which was becoming more popular at this time. Kerouac's main inspiration is his good friend Neil Cassidy, a charismatic character with a record for petty crime. Cassidy becomes the character Dean Moriarty in the book, and he travels around America with Kerouac's narrator, Sal Paradise. The buddies meet a range of interesting characters and have all sorts of misadventures, falling in and out of love with a number of women, taking drugs and searching for God. Kerouac worked on the manuscript late into the night, with his wife Joan supplying him with coffee, cigarettes, benzedrine, and bowls of pea soup. Brian Hassett talks about Jack Kerouac's friendship with Neil Cassidy and his main inspirations for On the Road. So they became friends. They met in December 46 and, 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 and had a lot of the adventures that are in On the Road were in sort of 1947. But Cassidy would write him these long first-person storytelling narrative letters telling Jack about some wild adventures that he had. And Jack received one of those letters that became um, known as the Joan Anderson Cherry Mary letter that Neil wrote him in December of 1950. And that was the light bulb flash moment for Kerouac when he realized, you know, he'd been sort of trying to write like his heroes, you know, Hemingway or Wolf or Soroyan or whatever. And here was this guy who basically never went to school, Neil Cassidy, um, who just told a story. And it blew Jack's mind open. And so Kerouac already had this tremendous command of language, um, but he was sort of struggling with the form and how to get it across. And he got this letter in December 1950, and it blew his mind. And he went, oh, that's the way to do it. And uh, on April 2nd, 1951, so three, four months later, um, he sat down and wrote On the Road in uh, three weeks. Uh, because he suddenly had this idea that, oh, I don't have to, I don't, this doesn't have to be Shakespeare. This can just be Cassidy. Let me just tell the story. He said a great thing in uh, that he did uh, with the Paris Review interview in, in 68, just before he died. He said a great thing I've never forgotten. He said, a novel should be like a guy sitting next to you in a bar telling you a great story. And so he got away from this whole kind of uh, uh, artificial, try to impress people, phony literary pretentiousness and just tell a story. And that was what the, that was the light bulb that, that, that Cassidy turned on. And, and, and he was never the same after that. He, 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 he was just a, like a dynamo uh, of writing. You know, he, he wrote Subterraneans in three days. So because he getting rid of that, you know, artistic and literary pretension and just let the stories flow and kind of the faster, the better, because you're just going to more honestly just simply tell what happened and not sit there and try to construct a sentence that your English teacher is going to love. But just tell give me a sentence that the guy next to me in a bar is going to love. Unfortunately, On the Road is initially rejected by publishers due to drug use and explicit sexual content. 
it's really only due to Kerouac's association with Allen Ginsberg that it is finally printed in 1957. While Jack is in the background in the mid-1950s, working tirelessly on the drafts for what will become ten more novels, Ginsberg is the more public face of the beats. He is the figure who shocks and scandalises readers. Ginsberg is proudly gay at a time when homosexuality is still illegal. He writes about his life and his mother's mental illness and lobotomy in raw, heartbreaking poetry. His most famous work, Howl, paradoxically gains traction after an obscenity trial. Novelist Grace Metallius has already explored the hypocrisy of small-town America in her novel Peyton Place, but in his work, Ginsberg pulls not only social mores, but traditional literary conventions apart, encouraging writers to embrace their inner madness. Since Kerouac and Ginsberg are known to be friends, the publishers who had previously rejected Kerouac become curious about his work. On the Road is eventually picked up by Viking Press, and it soon becomes a cult classic. Brian Hassett talks about why On the Road resonated with so many people. Well, it resonated with everybody, from Billy Joel up and down the ladder. It, uh, you know, I, I, it resonated, besides famous people, which I'll mention in a minute, but, it, you know, it resonated with every young person lying on their bed in some suburban house anywhere in the world, let alone just America, who, sort like Jack in Lowell, dreamed of something bigger than the hometown they were in. There was something more than my teachers were teaching me in the classrooms. And so every young boy and young girl could read this about adventures and, and, and hitchhiking across the country and not having any money and not having a car. He was, you know, he didn't even have that. And that you could go and, you know, put a backpack on your back and stand by the side of the road and put your thumb out and go anywhere in the world and meet interesting people and go to music and nightclubs. And it just what a life. And uh, so just people who were not famous were totally turned on by that. I'll just quick little thing. I'm like I, I was friends with almost all these people who were still alive, uh, didn't die in the 60s, that is. And uh, like I would hang out with Carolyn Cassidy, who was Neil's uh, uh, wife and uh, the love of Jack's life as well. And, you know, we at these different events and every person that would come up would say, you know, I read on the road when I was fill in the year, they fill in the age, and it changed my life. And they'd have some story about how on the road changed their life. Um, and that's just, you know, rank and file average people. Besides them, people like Jerry Garcia and Janis Joplin did completely changed their lives. And they went, oh, my God, there is I, I'm not alone. There's somebody else out there who's who sees the big world, sees the big picture, who wants to have adventures, who wants to hop, hop freight trains, who wants to listen to cool jazz, who wants to smoke jazz cigarettes and and, and meet people of all different ethnicities and ages and genders. And uh, um, and so, he, you know, and then Bob Dylan, 
as you know, Dylan wrote, if you read uh, Dylan's uh, memoir, Chronicles, he mentions Kerouac in there as often as he does Woody Guthrie or anybody else. Um, he said, you know, he has that line now, on the road changed my life just like it changed everybody else's. Um, great line, typical of Bob. And, uh, you know, the Beatles were, uh, when they f- first formed, would back up beat poets in England. And one of them, Royston Ellis, said, uh, you know, you're you're backing up, uh, and they still spelled the name B-E-T-L-E-S. And he said, you know, you're backing up a beat poet, and you're playing beat music, you should spell Beatles with an A. And that's how they changed their name. Um, so, uh, and Van Morrison, you know, mentions Jack in a number of songs. So all of these different artists you know, had their lives almost turned upside down, you might say, by the book. And then um, you get to uh, um, like the whole next generation of them, like, uh, um, you know, Patti Smith and Tom Waits and, um, you know, R.E.M. and and uh, on and on and on. The list of people who who that book changed the world for is almost endless. Kerouac's work was considered by his detractors to be the tale of two young men essentially looking for kicks. But many people today associate Jack Kerouac with religion. His strong French-Canadian Catholic origins are noticeable in his books, and as an adult he also dabbled in Buddhism. Unfortunately, neither Catholics nor Buddhists were happy about being linked to Jack. He was very much a lapsed Catholic, and his version of Buddhism was also diluted. But nonetheless, his novels did a lot to bring Eastern religion into public consciousness and make it trendy among young Westerners searching for meaning. Brian talks about the spirituality in Jack Kerouac's work. He was raised Catholic and, uh, you know, died Catholic. Uh, but in the middle, he took a heck of a detour into Buddhism. And uh, it's sort of funny that, but that uh, you know, the Catholics would largely consider him a lapsed Catholic. And, you know, the hardcore Buddhists felt like he didn't take them seriously enough and didn't sit and meditate and whatever all were their rules for membership. Um, so it's kind of funny, but he, he you know, they, in a sense, like both um, groups kind of rejected him on a certain level, but they both kind of went, oh, whenever it suited them. Oh, yes, Jack was a good Catholic boy or, oh, yes, Jack was a serious Buddhist, you know, if, if that was needed in any given moment. Um, and he did kind of firmly have one foot in each of those camps. Um, he didn't really write about his Catholicism, but he did write a couple of treaties of, uh, of Buddhism when he was. Um, deeply into it, um, you know, he, one, uh, some of the Dharma, which was not published in his lifetime, but he wrote it on like eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper and laid out like all of these, um, his own sort of rules and lessons and, and uh, findings and, 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 and of Buddhism. And it's 400 page book, a treatise of, of, you know, Jack's less lessons that he had learned. And, uh, so he was pretty seriously into it. And, you know, and, and um, the, the follow up book to On the Road was uh, um, the, the Dharma Bums. And that's the, the main character is sort of on a Buddhist search in that book. It's a, it's about. And so he also in that way popularized Eastern religion. And, you know, a lot of people, um, 
you know, in Western culture, uh, first kind of heard of this, like when the Beatles went to see the Maharishi in 67, I think it was. Um, and, you know, but the beats were there 10 years earlier, putting this stuff down and getting it out into the public mind. So, you know, they were very proactive in, 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 in that, in, in bringing sort of Zen and Buddhism into American consciousness. I mean, there was probably nobody more famous who did it before them than Jack and Alan and Gary and all those guys. And as to politics, um, he was very apolitical. He said in a, a 1958 interview with Ben Hecht, he said, uh, you know, I've never voted in my life. Uh, and he didn't live for too many more elections after that. So I imagine he never cast a vote in his life. You know, he did uh, sort of self-identify uh, as a conservative, uh, especially in the, the, the later years, the last years. But, you know, he, you know, at, whereas Allen Ginsberg was out at protests and kind of doing almost like register to vote kind of thing, Allen was very pro, um, proactive politically. Jack never went to a rally, you know, he, he never writes about it in any of his books. So he really, you know, he was kind of an honest, earnest, you know, real life writer. And that was what consumed him and not politics. The original beat writers were famously something of a boys' club. Critics of Jack Kerouac's work have noted that the strong homosocial bond between the male characters in On the Road means the women become two-dimensional, often treated dismissively and reduced to one-night stands and nagging shrews. However, among the movie stars and musicians inspired by On the Road is Kristen Stewart, who plays Dean's girlfriend Mary Lou in the movie adaptation of the book. Mary Lou is considered one of Kerouac's best female characters. She's flawed but independent, and she successfully escapes the clutches of her chaotic boyfriend and creates a life of her own. Throughout his life, Jack himself had three wives and numerous affairs. He had one child, his daughter Jan Kerouac, who grew up estranged from her father, but went on to become a writer herself. Jack once said his own mother, Gabrielle, who was living with him at the time of his death and was the beneficiary of his will, was the only woman he ever truly loved. Between the 1940s and the 1960s, Kerouac published a total of 14 fiction works, and a further eight were published posthumously. They range from the famous The Dharma Bums, a sequel to On the Road, to Visions of Gerard, Kerouac's tribute to his lost older brother, who died of rheumatic fever in childhood. Jack Kerouac firmly believed that Gerard was looking down on him from heaven, and with Gabrielle's support, he reimagined him in his work as an almost angelic figure. Kerouac also wrote several volumes of poetry and made forays into non-fiction writing. After his death, his ex-girlfriend, Joyce Johnson, came up with the theory that his distinct narrative style was attributable to English being his second language. Here's Brian Hassett talking about Jack being bilingual and how this might have affected his work. 
Well, it's uh, Joyce Johnson, who was his girlfriend, actually, uh, the, uh, around the time uh, that On the Road got published. Uh, she was the one who went to bed with him unfamous on September 4th and, and woke up. And she's the one who tells the story about how he woke up famous the next morning. Um, she did a big exploration into this, the French uh, connection. <laughs> Um, and so did Gerald, Gerald Nicosia, another biographer. Um, and and uh, so there's been a lot of uh, deep diving into this, and it's very real. Um, and the way I like to think of it is just as he was sort of effectively an immigrant, like his parents were directly immigrants, he was the son of the immigrants and didn't speak English until he was six. So he was very like outside of society. Then, And the French Canadians were very much looked down upon, like, just about every ethnic group, it seems. Um, and so he had to find ways to navigate life with that sort of a limitation imposed upon. Then when he learned English, I think that he kind of had the same ability and mindset to kind of get around corners, to see things differently, to approach things differently, as he had in every aspect of his life. Like, their cuisine at home was different. Their mores were different. Their clothes were different. They were sort of, you know, sort of a couple of degrees off. Well, he was a couple of degrees off from English. And so he had this sort of unique um, take on it that, you know, he was approaching it fresh as opposed to somebody who had it, you know, right from the get go. And then when I say, he didn't speak English till he was six. Well, he was just starting at six. So whereas other kids are going to be learning sentence structure and, and um, uh, definitions of words and, and, and how to put words together and all of that kind of stuff, he was behind the eight ball on that. And uh, so he was constantly, from the first time he, he, he used the language, kind of having to improvise around it and learn on his feet in how he spoke to people and how he, and then consequently wrote. So it was, you know, I, I think that that's really important that he had, he, he was an outsider to the language uh, when he first got to it. And so he always kind of was approaching it like with fresh eyes because kind of, he just got here. And so he was always seeing the language in a new way and then using it in a new way. The beat lifestyle took its toll on Jack. He suffered from alcoholism, which became worse once he achieved fame with On the Road. He died at the age of only 47 in 1969 of cirrhosis of the liver, combined with injuries he sustained in a serious bar fight a few weeks earlier. Although his estate today is worth millions, at the time of his death he was destitute. His muse, Neil Cassidy, was found dead the previous year in 1968, at the age of 42, beside railway tracks in Mexico. Cassidy apparently passed away from exposure, but he had also lived a turbulent life, and his health was badly affected by years of heavy drug use. The other original Beats managed to outlive the counterculture they fated in their work. William S. Burroughs lives on into the 1990s, and Allen Ginsberg, who bridges the beat and hippie movements, also continues to write and raise awareness for gay rights until his death in 1997. 
Ginsburg remembers Jack Kerouac with fondness, saying Kerouac's spontaneous prose inspired much of his poetry. Despite Jack's untimely end, his books live on in popular culture in the coming decades and inspire numerous writers, actors and musicians from Bob Dylan to The Beatles, The Doors and Johnny Depp, who once purchased his raincoat for more than $50,000. Brian Hassett talks about Jack's ongoing influence in popular culture. It speaks to a, um, a, an adventurous spirit that makes... That, 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 that manifests that you can read and go, somebody sees the world the same way I do. Boy, this is so much fun. I got to go out and have adventures like this Kerouac guy. In today's climate, the legacy of Jack Kerouac and the other beat poets is often perceived as problematic. But Kerouac's books are still widely read. They've inspired people all around the world to drop out, hit the road, and fully explore life in all its different aspects. An outsider himself, by both temperament and background, Kerouac evokes sympathy and a sense of poignancy for the most unlikely characters. Not just sex, drugs and jazz music, but deep and enduring friendship is a defining feature of his work. His books are studied in universities all over the world, and he has a well-earned reputation as a literary giant. Though he did his own fair share of travelling, some part of Jack Kerouac was always anchored in Lowell, Massachusetts. About six years before his death, he said, I have a recurring dream of simply walking around the deserted twilight streets of Lowell in the mist, eager to return to every known and fabled corner a very eerie recurrent dream, but it always makes me happy when I wake up. For its part, Lowell still celebrates its most famous son. In fact, more than 70 years after the teenage Jean-Louis made the library his favourite spot, a memorial of sorts has even been set up to the author. He has his own Jack Kerouac seat and reserved for the ghost of the city's most voracious reader. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. A very special thanks to our guest, Brian Hassett, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Jack Kerouac and numerous other books on Kerouac and the Beat Generation. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We're taking a look at Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth satellite launched into orbit by the Soviet Union in October of 1957. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook. Or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners. So please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening. And please come back next time to hear more 
from Since the World's Been Turning.